Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the Cartoon Salooniverse, the podcast that toasts the work of one of the world's greatest animation studios, Cartoon Saloon. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen the lot of them. I'm Steph Watts. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and we're rising to the occasion. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Cartoon Saloon. Hello, Michael. Hello, Steph. Lovely to hear you and see you once again. And it's as always, another exciting week in the Cartoon Salooniverse. Um, and this week marks our first diversion away from the films of Tom Moore. And we're looking at a brave new adventure for Cartoon Saloon. Steph, what's happening? Well, it seems that this week the breadwinner might have something to prove. <laughs> <laughs> So for the past couple of weeks, we've had um, Cartoon Saloon films directed by Tom Moore, but this week we're having one directed by Nora Toomey. And from a story point, this one is very different from what we've seen before and what we'll talk about next week as well. Um, It's a bit of an outlier, but still very much recognisably a Cartoon Saloon film at the same time. Uh, So Steph, if you do us the honours, What is The Breadwinner all about? Eleven-year-old Pavana lives with her family in Kabul, Afghanistan, which is under Taliban rule. When her father is arrested without warning for being an intellectual, Pavana's mother is left alone to care for three children. As the family becomes desperate for food, Pavana must cut off her hair and disguise herself as a boy so that she can venture out in public and become the breadwinner for her family. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you, Steph. Um, now, Michael, not to sound too much like a chuckle brother, um, but it's time to go to you for to me. What's going on here? <laughs> yes, let's um, let's start with Nora Toomey, who we've mentioned a couple of times in the series so far. Of course, she co-founded the studio. Um, she co-directed The Secret of Kells and worked on Song of the Sea as well. But this is her first feature as solo director. She's a couple of years older than Tom Moore. Um, she was born in Cork. She left school at 15. And she talks about how a pretty grueling job she had in a factory sort of fostered her imagination. It was one it was a very loud factory floor where she had to wear earplugs and earmuffs on top, which meant that you couldn't listen to the radio, you couldn't talk to people. So it was only her and her imagination um, keeping her company from nine to five. So for a sort of wannabe filmmaker, animator, artist, she says almost the perfect way of, uh, of, of opening up that imagination at a young age. She does later on go to art school. She goes to Ballyfermot College, like Tom Moore and Paul Young did. And she works for a short time at Brown Bag Films in Dublin. So Brown Bag Films are simultaneously famous and infamous in our household. And I wonder if any of our listeners are CBeebies watchers, because they made some of the best and some of the worst uh, CBeebies shows in rotation at the moment, like Octonauts, which we love, Bing, which we tolerate, and Peter Rabbit, which we turn <laughs> off. <laughs> <laughs> but they are like the the huge kids animation company in Ireland. They pump out so much stuff. And uh, Nora Toomey worked for a short while there before then, as we said, hooking up with Tom Moore and Paul Young in 1999 and co-founding the studio. We've mentioned her credits on the features, but of course she also did some shorts as well in that time, which we'll probably touch on, I think, in the roundup episode of this miniseries. I think they're really worth looking at. Now, The Breadwinner, is adapted from a novel by Deborah Ellis. It's actually the first in a series of books about Pavana. Um, the book was optioned by a Canadian company, Aircraft Pictures, and they, I think, originally considered making it into a live-action film. But then they saw The Secret of Kells and thought that Cartoon Saloon would be the company to make this story into a film using their very unique style of animation. So they go to Cartoon Saloon and the project lands with Nora Toomey to develop. So this is another one of those massive international co-productions. You have Aircraft in Canada, Cartoon Saloon in Ireland, and also Melusine in Luxembourg doing the bulk of the work, all helpfully funded by local sort of funds and tax breaks. And we've covered this before, but 
this independent co-production route that Cartoon Saloon takes means that their films often have very much tighter budgets than if they went the Hollywood route. But there's a certain freedom and responsibility that comes along with that. And I think Nora Toomey talks about that in a really interesting way. So this is a quote from an interview where some of the considerations that go into making these films, she says, it's a case of asking, what do we want as a global society? What kinds of stories do we want to tell our kids? Are we pushing the toy everyone wants for Christmas or are we trying to give our children tools to deal with the world? For me, it's the latter. I made a choice in my 20s as to what I was going to do. Was I going to work in a big studio or was I going to try and give myself that feeling where it's six o'clock in the evening and I want to continue working? I wanted to have that exuberance about what I do. So let's shout out a few key members of the crew for the breadwinner. A newcomer here is Canadian-Hungarian filmmaker Anita Doran, who co-writes the screenplay with Nora Toomey. You also have Iranian artist Reza Riahi, who shares the art direction credit on this film with Kieran Duffy. Reza also um, contributed location design and character design. And on the animation side, we've not really mentioned some of the deeper cuts in terms of credits on the film so far. So some of these aren't new names, but it's worth shouting out Fabian Erlinghauser, animation director, Sandra Norup Anderson, who's a character designer, and also Louise Bagnall, also a character designer on this. Uh, these are names that we'll probably mention again as the series goes on, uh, all really important to the Cartoon Saloon look. And also so important to the vibe cartoon saloon because i've said before how they're very sort of collegiate and collaborative people rise through the ranks and are very much supported through their career journeys again nora Toomey has a really good quote on that point and how that is reflected in this film she says animation particularly this kind of co-production with over 300 people from different countries and cultures bringing all their skills together to make one film and tell one story with one central performance is for me the ultimate expression of hope because we're in a time when we are looking to pull cultures apart and tell them they don't have the right to tell their stories, which is the opposite of what we're doing. We should all be trying to tell each other's stories to understand and participate in each other's stories so that we can learn about each other and have some hope for the future. What a wonderful way of putting it, I think. We should also say there's a someone called Angelina Jolie comes on board as executive producer quite early on. Um, and she's not just lending her name to the film, you know, in that way that you know, Martin Scorsese might just say executive produces a film just to sort of get eyeballs on it. She's very much involved in the development, in the casting. She gives um, them connections out in Afghanistan because Angelina Jolie does all sorts of humanitarian aid work out there. So she's very involved in the steering of production from start to finish. So September 2017... The film launches at the Toronto Film Festival and other film festivals follow throughout the rest of the year and then it's released uh, the year after in the UK. I saw this at the London Film Festival um, in October 2017 um, at the Embankment Gardens Cinema, which is the really big temporary cinema they put up for the London Film Festival. Such a great place to see a film, I think. But of course, let's flash forward to Oscars. This is the third uh, cartoon saloon feature out of three to get nominated for best animated feature at the oscars in 2018 i think i say this every time but a really weird category so uh jake and steph i'm going to run through the nominees for you here the breadwinner was up against loving vincent the incredibly experimental european film where they were literally animating paintings ferdinand 
Do you remember Ferdinand, Jake? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been <laughs> three years and I struggle to even re- remember anything to do with Ferdinand. Um, Steph kindly pointed out that it was the one about a bull. Um, and I think that's that's the extent of any uh, cultural impact maybe Ferdinand has had. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe this is blasphemy and Steph is, in fact, an enormous Ferdinand fan. <laughs> have not even seen it i just know from the poster i think that's so i guess good characters on their part yeah good ball design the um obligatory disney pixar nominee for the year is coco which wins but of course we can't leave out possibly the most prominence of the nominees that year which is the boss baby <laughs> so what a weird category where you have the all the way all the way from the boss baby to loving vincent um, and then somewhere in the middle you have something like the breadwinner up against coco and of course coco wins that year but i'd say it just like imagine if you were in the, the voting for that category and you forgot that you had to do it and then you just realized oh god it's sunday and i've got to do my nominees on monday and i haven't watched anything and you've got to marathon those five films and you get the whiplash of going from the breadwinner into the boss baby into loving it. Yeah. So Coco wins, of course, but I really think that the breadwinner was in with a strong shout that that year. It really stood out as one of the best animated features of, of the year. A thread that's run all the way through Ghibli Attack in these context conversations we've had is, is how sort of grueling the animation process is we talk about studio ghibli and the way that you know people would be driven to stress or how miyazaki at age 40 would be saying i'm past it and i can't animate anymore i should retire and he retires over and over again nora toomey when she was making this film um went through cancer treatment and in the final year of the production i didn't know this at the time but she talked about it quite a lot in interviews when i went back and read this and she you know touch wood she's sort of in the clear now it's this is five years ago almost um but she had a very wise way of looking at it and i'd like to end on this quote because i think it's quite a poignant one she says people talk about cures but once a doctor says the word cancer to you there's no going back i read upon it quite a bit and i'm under no illusions about the sneakiness of cancer but they brought me back time my doctors gave me back my health. So for me, that's absolutely incredible. They managed to inject me with just the right amount of poison and zap me with the right amount of radiotherapy to give me back time. Time to be making films, time to be with my children. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. And I think we're so grateful to also be able to see these films. And we know that Norotumi has another film coming out this year, I believe, or at least within the next year for Netflix. So... Before we talk about that, though, we have to talk about her feature debut, The Breadwinner. Okay, so Steph, all the way through this series, we've been calling you the Jake <laughs> of the Cartoon Universe because you're watching some of these films for the first time. So the question we always ask going into this reaction review segment is, what's familiar, what's different? So watching The Breadwinner for the first time, after watching the previous two, we have this sense of what to expect from a Cartoon Saloon film, right? What's different when we watch The Breadwinner? Well, I guess kind of starting with that 
opening shot, you have that very familiar cartoon saloon kind of spiral, circular imagery that feels quite kind of comforting and familiar if you're watching all of the films um, in succession. But then kind of cutting straight to it's a very different world. Um, even in the the visuals, the kind of that flat 2D element um is a lot more there's a lot more depth in it it looks a lot more realistic and I think probably suitable for a story where they're trying to set up a lot more kind of realistic world I mean there's a lot more kind of violence in this one a lot more conflict and yelling and it's kind of more based in um in real historical events than the last two that we've watched Mm -hmm. I find it interesting how, as I've gone back and rewatched Secrets of Kells and Song of the Sea and done the research for this podcast, we we know that Secrets of Kells is also based in history. We know that Song of the Sea is literally based in a specific time period, Halloween 1987, in a specific place. However, it's only really with The Breadwinner where we feel that specificity of place and time and comes along with this animation style, which maybe for the first time feels like they're building a real world around it. Yeah, absolutely. But they're not throwing away what they've done before either. And we've spoken before about how amazing they are with simple shapes conveying complex emotions. And that carries through right here to the character. There's a baby boy character who, much like Saoirse in Song of the Sea, is very much just a, a round face with very simple flat features, but using that to get so much expression and we see that across all of the character design here. Again, it's still that simplicity of shape, but it's putting it very much in a lived present world. I think we are we are asked to be part of this world. Um, it's it's very intimate, and we don't have as much of that kind of god's eye view, kind of flat plan of these fantastical worlds. It's almost like we are looking at it from eye level that we might be walking the streets or sitting down with these characters rather than just kind of observing them. I think you definitely still have that, uh, like you said about the baby, Jake, you have that really strong like character design and a lot of like showing you um, things you need to know without maybe always telling you like I think the the designs of the family are so strong because you have kind of um, Pavana and Soraya the two sisters have a very kind of similar face shape you have the baby there's like this really lovely moment where the baby and the mother are kind of sleeping like facing each other and their faces almost kind of fit together like a a jigsaw they kind of complement each other so well and it's just like you know that this is like a close-knit family and a family that's kind of yeah, like joined together even by those um, character designs that they've done, which are so simple in shape. And and that harmony is disrupted by intense violence uh, that is on a scale to which we, we've absolutely not been close to in the previous films at all. Right? There, is, there is gunshots and blood and bruising and bombed out tanks and cars and things. And it's like that is at least for us kind of going on this journey, quite a shock. And it's violence that's very much real violence within the world. There's there's peril and stakes and threat there 
Because the Secrets of Kells ends with an entire town being raised by Vikings, but it's told in such an abstract way, and it's set in this fabulistic world and style that it's easy for us to sort of disassociate slightly from it, to distance ourselves from it. Whereas in this, we really are invested in the reality of this and the real threat. Yeah, and because because the the design of the film is going for, I'm not going to say realist, but because <laughs> um, it is a bit more grounded than the previous ones, um, mm. it makes that violence land with more of a whack than it might have done had this been in the style of Kells or Song of the Sea. I suppose one massive point that's different about this is that it's not in Ireland, right? And so so much of that attention to detail in the music and the designs and the um, you know character designs and stories grew out of Ireland and the culture and the landscape in the previous two films. And it feels like they are still using a lot of that approach in this in the way that you know, one of the first things we see is this Arabic script on the screen. The music is, is, is clearly influenced by traditions from the region as well. It, you know, it's key that we mentioned that one of the the you know the art director is credited with location design because they clearly were really trying to create that specificity too. So it's quite. I remember being in my seat sitting down to watch this when it first came out, having loved Song of the Sea, thinking what what's what's cartoon saloon going to do once they get out of kilkenny what's the, what's the get out of ireland what's what's their approach going to be and there's still quite a lot that's familiar in that difference right yeah there's lots of familiar stuff here uh our thread for the podcast series seems to be talking about cartoon saloon as people that are interested within storytelling uh as part of their stories themselves and again here we've got a story within a story uh, throughout Pavana is telling this yarn to the baby brother and to other characters uh, about a prince who must fight the elephant king and in this we actually have a diversion of style and we have this 2D paper cutout which is equally beautiful as the kind of holding form story as well And but there's lots of other things that come up throughout even if we have got a different style with Steph you mentioned a couple of things like that opening the circles within circles where it's almost like a kaleidoscope or like a magic eye viewer. And that is a visual that we see throughout all the films. You mentioned them lying in the bed together, the way that their hair is so long, it almost fills out the frame and how important that is. And that's something that we see in The Secret of Kells, in the forest. That's something that we see in the sewers in Song of the Sea. And again, that importance of hair is coming back here too. Uh, And Michael, your favourite, there's a sad dad. I feel a bit mean saying this is a sad dad movie because I think being locked up by the Taliban uh, qualifies. (laughs) It's a bit more than being a sad dad. But yeah, it it, it definitely is in that tradition where the, the father figures have, you know, have the weight of the world on their shoulders. Although in this one, that's what's different and quite refreshing is that the mum is very present in that world and has to face the tough decisions in when the dad and goes away. In terms of carrying something through, but evolving it to fit this more realistic world is this sense of transformation. And for people that have listened to our Studio Ghibli podcasts, transformation is so key to a lot of those stories, whether that is 
kind of inner transformation or whether that is your parents turning into gluttonous pigs at a buffet. Um, transformation is a line that we've covered a lot on this podcast. And it's there through all of Cartoon Saloon's films before as well. Yes, that can be fantastical. That can be turning into a seal or turning into a wolf. But in here, it's the process of transformation that allows Pavana to enter the world and bring kind of agency and autonomy for her and help her family survive. But in this case, it is through the cutting of the hair, which they so beautifully showed how important that was, transforming herself to appear as a boy so she can help her family. Yeah, that hair cutting scene, I think, was so good. And it's all kind of done silently as well. There's not really... uh any kind of discussion about it it's just like she knows what she has to do she does it and that's kind of it and that is like yeah I think like a really powerful scene and like her sister helps her do it as well and it there's no kind of like agonizing over whether she should do it or not it's like the fact that she just that is her path forward that she has to take to um provide for her family and like protect them is is really yeah it's really moving. Steph, absolutely agree. I think that haircut scene is amazing. The kind of quiet pragmatism that Pavana has in that moment is amazing. Um, let's do a quick roundup. What were the other standouts that we were picking out from this one? Well, I really liked that um, Pavana has a friend, Shazia, who's going through the same thing. Like the moment when she realizes that another girl is dressing as a boy, um, just I think adds like a really fun element to that film and then the fact that when she's trying to tell Shazia the story about the Elephant King Shazia just kind of comes in and interrupts in this almost like Michael Pena trying to tell his story in Ant-Man kind of way Um, (laughs) and she's just kind of like interrupting and changing the story and she's putting like an old crusty horse in there when it's supposed to be this like really kind of intense emotional like moment in Pavana's story um it's such kind of really good light relief and I think it's just a really great example of like how verbal stories get passed down and changed and that kind of um almost like urban legend kind of element to it where you'll have kind of a root of a story that will then kind of grow off other roots as new people pick it up and change elements. And um, yeah, I just really love that scene. I, I really like Shazia in general. I think the voice work is is brilliant. Um, considering these are you know actual like young girls, uh, we've talked about how cute the Irish kids have been in the film so far, but like the, the girls in this film have to really carry the dramatic weight of the entire story, but also then shift in mood and tone for the scenes where they're together. And what I like about Shazia in the scenes with her is that, um, Jake, you mentioned transformation and how this is, you know, continuing that thread through the films. It's the sense that through transformation, we can slip through the, you know, the, um, the dogma of society we can we can transgress we you know we, we can you know like, like in song of the sea we find this whole buried tradition the secret of Kells, he can literally walk through the wall that his uncle has built around the town and in this one they're able to slip through society without the the things that are expected of young girls all the things that are on their shoulders but there are real antagonists in this film i know that's that was a standout for you jake 
Yeah, I think Idris, who's the young boy who's been recruited by the Taliban, who kind of kickstarts the the drama um, of the story, he is initially presented as like a clear cut baddie, and is almost like a hissable villain. But in I think it's a really elegant piece of storytelling that is surprising and slick and satisfying when at the end of the film Idris gets picked up by his superiors and thrown in the back of the truck and it's framed exactly the same way as when he picks up Pavana's dad and it's just showing this cycle of violence that people are trapped in on both sides of this violence whether they are the victims or the perpetrators of it. And you can see a pain in Idris's eyes in that moment as well. And you do sympathize with him, which considering everything we've seen him do up to that point is an amazing thing for the story to achieve. And it does so in a matter of seconds. It does something similar, actually, just before the scene you were talking about, Steph, when he fires the gun. And he's clearly surprised. He's like fiddling with it and fires. And he's there's a moment of surprise or shock or potential horror that he's he might have killed somebody when he fires into the cave that they've hidden in. And I wondered, watching this for the first time, Steph, did you think that Shazia might have been shot in that moment? Yeah, I don't know, because I was definitely surprised by kind of um the amount of like violence and shock in the film. Yeah, like I guess a little part of me was like maybe they're kind of going all the way here type thing because it was like getting pretty dark um, and I wasn't entirely sure kind of how far they were going to go with it. But um, yeah, I think there's definitely like they, yeah, they really kind of show that level of threat to like these two young girls really well. Like I think you do definitely believe at all times that they could get hurt and something could happen to them. Um, There's definitely not that kind of like heroes, like protection around them. That means that like nothing will happen to them. Definitely. Yeah, Steph, we were talking um, after you watched it. So kind of marveling that this was a 12A in some ways, because the violence is so present and and particularly the bit where the mum grabs the knife, which is such a sort of action movie thriller thing to do, and the blood is actually there sort of dripping down the blade. Um, but I suppose it has it, it it treats that audience with respect that they're going to be kids that will that can go through this story because there is something to be learned by the end of it. The bit that um, really hits me, I know, Steph. I, I think I think you you said that um, this was quite a tearjerker for you right yeah for sure like basically the whole kind of final act of this movie was just crying (laughs) the bit that really sort of made me catch myself was but the when they when she finally gets to the end of um the story of the boy going up the mountain and all the way through it's been almost weaved as this tale not too dissimilar from what we've seen in the cartoon saloon films in the past where it's this highly metaphoric, fabulistic take on what's really going on in the story about standing up to um, the red cloud or the, the the elephant at the top of the mountain that's taking something away from the people, but also acting as some, some sort of tyrannical figure 
all the way through, you're thinking that there's this metaphorical level. But what really blows away the elephant at the end is when all of that metaphorical rhetoric of the story is just stripped away completely. And the very basic truth of the story is what is told, which is this is her brother, Suleiman, who was a kid who picked up a toy in the street that exploded and he died. And it's repeating that truth over and over again in the face of what's oppressing you that you hope will get through and relate on a human level. And that just really, especially now we're in this frame of mind where we're looking at these films, and I know my galaxy brain takes have always been about story and what story can enliven within ourselves, within our cultures, within our everyday lives. The fact that it manages to pivot on this moment where there is clearly such value in weaving this great grand narrative, the use of metaphor. And it's immediately followed by that quote from the poem about, um, uh, it is rain that makes the flowers grow, not thunder. So there's clearly still immense power in rhetoric and poetic language. However, what is really powerful is the cleanest, most simple message of a child in peril. A child that died, the tragedy, and that's something that we said, Jake. You were you're very big on that reading of Song of the Sea about the burying of emotions or the letting loose of emotions or the opening up and the communication. But that film clearly kept it still within the jar, so to speak, of metaphor. Whereas this one, it's there front and center, and it's amazing that when just as you think that you know how Carting Celine approaches stories, they add another twist to it. And uh, yeah, that, that just completely blew my mind. Uh, Michael, you mentioned wondering what might happen when Cartoon Saloon finally steps out of Ireland. And this is what we get, the breadwinner, which we all clearly like a lot. Uh, but I think it's important to think about the film from other perspectives. Who is telling this story and who the story is actually for? Yeah, so... This film opened to pretty universal acclaim. Um, Five-star reviews, um, all sorts of hyperbole, Oscar nomination, as we said. And I gave all that context in terms of quotes from Nora Toomey because I think it really feeds into how thoughtful this film is. It, it really is quite profound in many ways. But one thing that's always good to do is to look at who's writing those reviews, particularly when we're coming at it from an anglophonic kind of background and it's you know I, I actually actively sought out some pieces by people from from middle eastern backgrounds writing about it and there's a really good piece that i found on a milestones journal by a writer called Jaleel kachai who wrote a piece titled the breadwinner or the cinema as secular hegemony and it's really fascinating. They say that, you know, this is a great film. The artistry, the thoughtfulness is astounding. However, within that sensitivity, it still reveals some of the natural cultural biases that come from white Western liberalism. And it's a very interesting way of unlocking the film, not necessarily to undermine it, but just to under unlocking our perspectives on the Middle East. So for example, at the beginning, or in that frame story, they talk about a civil war, an invasion, and all these things. And we see the fighter jets, or the bombers, go over at the top at the end. But America is never talked about explicitly. And America's role in this sort of last few decades 
of history of the region, how parts of that war were part of the Cold War, how the Taliban has its roots in what came after that, and how the Taliban does not just rise out of nowhere. It's not this unique thing. The article also talks about things that we've mentioned here about freedom and transgression, how cutting her hair and living as a boy means that Pavana can live outside of the veiled world of being a woman under Islam, which, of course, again, it's a very sort of white Western liberal point of view. Um, it's a really fascinating article, and I'll, I'll make sure we have the link in the show notes, just because it really does unlock that perspective. We have our own perspective coming to this, and we clearly love it. Um, it's just good to see other um, other takes, I think. But you also ask Jake, who's this for? And I think that that has an impact on that too. And I wondered, do you, do you, this film was issued with um, a teaching guide, almost like a, for book groups, kind of sort of like, you know, for, for, the, for the lesson that you'd have with your teacher after seeing it. Does it come across like a, a very special film to learn more about this conflict? I mean, if I was a hip RE teacher then I would absolutely be wheeling out the telly on a uh, trolley and putting the kids down to watch the breadwinner to learn a bit about the wider world and how that intersects with kind of faith and personality. And it's exactly the kind of thing that coming from a Catholic background and a Catholic education, I guarantee that one of those education packs was sent to my school. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't it doesn't come across as worthy, right? So this is definitely an Oscar film. It was nominated for an Oscar, but it doesn't come across as Oscar Beatty in the way that maybe some of these films could. I think there's only one moment like that, which is the moment uh, with the postcard, uh, where you in that moment you're you're flagged who perhaps this film has been made for because that very much is a moment that hinges on white Western liberal guilt to feel something in that moment. Uh, and that kind of maybe clues us into the background of the film more than any other moments, which feel kind of so passionately researched and organic. Steph, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I feel like that, that little postcard moment is an odd, a kind of rare cliche kind of image in this film when a lot of the the backgrounds and the building of the world has so much care in it and attention to detail. And it's not just this kind of flat, like yellow and brown um, environment. You have so many kind of lovely changes in the light like when it's evening you get these more like orangey purple kind of um tones over everything and yeah that that is kind of a an odd little scene that I think does um yeah that does kind of tell who is who is writing it and what perspective they're coming from even if I mean yeah even if their heart is in the right place with it but I think the, the, the big question really is what's the right place for the film in our rankings of the cartoon saloon features? Oh yeah. Which uh, we, we don't actually have a name for. <laughs> um, and we will have a name for by the end of the series because our lovely listeners will have tweeted and emailed us some great ideas. 
is this the saloon's most wanted uh, or is there something better out there? Uh, let's rank it. So I'll kick this one off. For me, um, The Breadwinner is an amazing film, um, but it just doesn't hit the heights of the previous two. I think The Secret of Kells is such a grand announcement for the studio and it's trying so many things. And I love that it's doing all of this crazy stuff and doing it in such a beautiful way. Uh, but Song of the Sea is is the one for me. I, I think I'll, I'll put this as third at the moment as well. Although I think tied with Secret of Kells, I think in terms of my personal affection for the film i think I, i'd go for secret kells but in terms of recommendability if that's a if, if that's a quality we're ranking these on i think this is very a very easy one to recommend secret kells is quite experimental and has quite sharp edges to it yeah i think despite it being more traumatic uh i find myself watching the breadwinner more anyway um because I, I think the craft in it is just incredible and with each watch, you can just dart your eyes to a different corner of the screen and see another incredible thing that the animators mm-hmm. are doing. Yeah, and so for me, Song of the Sea, Secret of Kells, the breadwinner for me. Um, I think we should go and watch Nora Toomey's shorts. I think we'll do that at the end because she's done some amazing work in shorts too. So I don't want to feel like we're putting the, the, the Tom Moore universe ahead of Nora Toomey at all. Steph, where, where, where would the breadwinner fall for you? Well, I agree with you guys with Song of the Sea as number one. I think that one is just so fantastic. And But I think I would put The Breadwinner second. Um, I think I gel with it a bit more than, I, like you said, Secret of Kells is quite experimental and um, not all of those kind of big experimental moments worked for me. But I think The the Breadwinner is really, um, feels really accomplished and... Um, comes together a lot better than that film. So for me, it's Song of the Sea, Breadwinner, Secret of Kells. Steph, that's quite amazing considering you watched the second half of the film through a pain of tears and probably couldn't make much of it out. I mean, yeah, who's to say if I actually watched the same movie that you guys did because I couldn't see half of it. second half was very wet. (laughs) (laughs) They did this weird effect and it was a bit blurry. (laughs) Next week, we'll be talking about Tom Moore and Ross Stewart's collaboration, Wolf Walkers, uh, which is out on Apple TV Plus if you want to catch up with it. Um, but we, have, we want to be hearing from you guys, our listeners as well. As we said, if you've got a name for our list, please let us know. Or if you've got any thoughts on Cartoon Saloon, your experiences with these films, any fond memories you might have of watching them. We love to hear about it. Um, And we'll be doing those letters on our mailbag and more roundup at the end of this series. If you want to get in touch for that, you can email ghibli at little.studios.com and you can keep up with us on Twitter too. We're at Ghibliotech and Steph is on Twitter as well. She's there at underscore Steph Watts. Michael is there at Michael J Leader. And Jake is on Twitter at Jake H Cunningham. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and the show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. This episode was edited by Nadine Peters.
Hi, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us through the credits. This is another one of my deep dives into the <laughs> into the credits on IMDb. I mentioned in this episode how Fabian Erlinghauser is one of the key members of Cartoon Saloon, animation director, and then he also rises through the ranks. We'll talk about some more of his work later in the series. I find it funny that for the breadwinner in the credits for Zaki, who is uh, the, the little baby, is credited Lily Erlinghauser, who I'm going to go out on a limb and presume is Fabian's uh, baby daughter. I think that's quite cute and feeds quite well into how Cartoon Saloon is very much a family. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.